Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Enjoy local voices. Enjoy local opinions. All on one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast DC is the new local app with hundreds of DC area podcasts. Featuring some of the DC area's best personalities, pundits, and provocateurs. Earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts you love instantly. With new programs being added every week, don't hesitate. Download Podcast DC now for free. Available in the App Store or in Google Play. Podcast DC. Listen local. Mean Old Line Media presents the history of being black. Welcome to another episode of the history of being black. I am your host, Eunice Elliott. I'm one of the more fortunate people in the podcast space because I get to talk to some of the coolest black folks in America about being black. In America. <laughs> I mean, who gets to do that other than me? So today I am joined by a good friend of mine and also a friend of the podcast, Michelle Clement, attorney Michelle Clement. But uh, she wears many hats uh, and we're going to delve a little bit into one of her passions. Uh, Michelle, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yet again. Now, you're an attorney, you're a professor, you're, you teach, but what, what is it, um, when you're teaching, tell me about the course that you teach at, at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and that's what I want us to talk about today, how you got to uh, have a focus in that area. Yeah, so I teach a course called uh, The History of Sport, the African American Experience, and more or less, it's a chronological journey from you know, the Middle Passage to the 21st century exploring um, the experiences of Blacks from slavery to like being multi-billion dollar making athletes today. And I have tried to frame the course very much around this notion that sports as experienced by Blacks in this country has always kind of had this subversive nature to it and always has has an element of uh, rebellion and protest mm-hmm. and activism in it. Uh, but that's just a, a, a theme that I you know, try to, I try not to be too heavy handy, handed with my students with it. It's just something that I hope by the end of the course they've managed to pick up is something I, I do believe is, is a part of that experience. Um, so, wait, well, let me ask you, why do you, when you say you try not to be too heavy handed, why is that? I mean, I feel like sometimes that's been the issue with American history and why so much important information has been left out is the people that wrote the books didn't want to be, you know, too like, heavy handed. Uh, we don't tell you too much about what really happened. Why, why do you try to avoid that in the class? That's, that's a fair observation. Let me say that. My approach as a history instructor is to really try to put the information there for them to get it and develop it and kind of process it themselves. If it's me kind of giving them the history and telling them, that, you know, like, then they aren't learning. History is more than just about, like, knowing what happened. It's about knowing what happened, why it happened, the the, the influential factors that were co- in, coming into play, and then being able to connect that to, well, it's usually something in the present, and, um, and compare contrast the two, understand how just because a similar situation resolved itself in this way a hundred years ago, it might not resolve itself the same way today because of these reasons. But uh, And that is a learned skill as far as like critical analysis and critical thinking. And I want my students to be thinkers. 
Uh, and so it is that that is why I try to kind of put the elements there for them to then be able to connect the dots on their own. And I try to make enough a strong enough inference between the dots that they bring it together rather than me just kind of telling them. Instead of you just saying that ain't that messed up. <laughs> right. I want them to say, you know what? That's messed up. <laughs> want I want them telling me. I want them telling me it's messed up. I already know it's messed up. Mm-hmm. But if they can kind of reflect it back to me without just, I don't want them parroting what I've told them. I want them telling me what conclusions they've reached on their own by by virtue of kind of the the facts they've been given. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about black folks in 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 sports. When you say from the middle passage to today, like talk to me about that storyline. And um, you know, at some point, black folks were actually bred uh, to be big and strong yeah. in the fields and 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 to to be able to do all this free labor. Um, how does that translate outside of slavery? Yeah. So when when we talk about the black experience and like recreation and leisure in, during slavery times, like it's um, you know obviously slavery was oppressive, de- dehumanizing, and violent. But slave owners did allow for some level of recreation mainly because they didn't want slaves to revolt. And they thought anything they could do to kind of keep slaves minimally happy to quell any notions of revolt, they would do that. So they, you know, they would, certain holidays were big um, in antebellum times, like Easter, the 4th of July, Christmas, they provide whiskey and food for them. The types of sports that were played, I mean, they were, you know, like games around running races and things like that. Horse racing became something that slaves became very good at because they were the ones tending to the horses and cultivating the relationships with horses. So that's why you see like the first this is a statistic out there, something like the first nine of the first 13 Kentucky Derbies were won by black jockeys. Mm-hmm. So, you know, black folks relationship to, to horses led them to be good horse racers. We were into boxing, uh, but those were very controlled things for us. You know, we, we could do it, but they had parameters around them. Right. Uh, and yes, and yes, black, it's hard to call them athletes into that. Black slaves were bred to be performers and mm-hmm. bet, uh, there was a betting culture that was very dominant among sla- Southern slave owners. And so, yes, betting on the performance of, you know, which black slave could defeat another slave in a boxing match mm-hmm. to the point of death. That was absolutely a part of an unfortunate part, but a part of the black experience in sport and leisure in this country. And you see that evolve. And, and the, the black experience in this kind of sports in this country kind of mimics and is a microcosm of the overall black experience in this country. So uh, it's in like from the 1850s. These until the 1870s, 1880s, you begin to see blacks playing what you might call professional sports. But invariably, and Roden talks about blacks in this time frame I've referenced beginning to encounter what he calls the jockey syndrome, which is um, a form of white supremacy, essentially, in which as blacks began to ascend and, and dominate certain sports, the rules were changed. Uh-huh. So that they were eliminated from play in some way. Most of it through measures and mechanisms internal to the sport. For example, uh, the sporting league stopped allowing black players or uh-huh. would only allow one black player on a team. But you begin to see the first, the first kind of black dominant athletes in this time frame, the latter part of, uh, part of the 19th century. So, uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker, you don't hear about him. But he was actually the first black to play in the major leagues, you know, 
many, okay. many decades before Jackie Robinson. In the 18, in the 1870s and 80s, or 1880s rather, uh, baseball had multiple leagues that were considered professional leagues. And so he played for one of those. He was ultimately precluded from play when the confederation, if you will, of leagues started denying blacks the right to play baseball. Mm-hmm. And so we were, we were boxed out of that for decades until, uh, Ruth Foster founds the Negro National Leagues in the 1920s. And so it's interesting because just even you talking about it right now, a lot of a lot of guests on the history of being black have talked about things that black folks did in the 16, 17, 1800s, whether it was having thriving communities or towns or being in politics and that there would then be this consortium that would say, we're going to make new rules because black folks are having too good of a time. And the same thing happened in sports. (laughs) I'm like, okay, so we're making new rules like we still do today. Exactly. So, you know, when you talk about, again, when you talk about the African-American experience in sports, it, it tracks along with our experience as a people in this country. And so it's in the late 19th century, just when you see Plessy v. Ferguson, separate but equal, uh, a retraction of rights, reconstruction has ended, convict leasing becomes the, the, the new form of slavery, Black famous um, dominant Black athletes are being boxed out of, no pun intended, boxed out of their, their sports through different mechanisms. You see it with Major Taylor, who was like the dominant cyclist of the late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, you see it with Isaac Murphy from uh, a horse racing standpoint. Uh, and this is all occurring in that time frame. You see it with Jack Johnson in the early 20th century, but boxing was, uh, was a, uh, Roden says that boxing was this phenomenon that really wasn't, you know, there wasn't a league that could tell blacks not to, that they couldn't box. You know, it was, they were independent contractors. Either somebody wanted to fight somebody or they didn't. And so Jack Johnson gets caught up in the, in the jockey syndrome through the legal process. You know, he, he gets charged up on a man act charge, ends up, I think ends up getting convicted for tax evasion and flees the country and all this. But that's what takes, it's the legal matters that take Jack Johnson out of boxing. And we know how dominant he was, the first black heavyweight champion. So yeah, and we, we see instances of the of the the jockey syndrome today they've just evolved and gotten more refined over time you could argue that simone's biles and the fact that you know this these these gymnastic moves that only she can execute are devalued as i understand that they are devalued and not given the high numerical count that they should be given to discourage others from trying it because they know she's the only one that can do it and it's going to disincentivize her from trying it because she knows she she knows she can't get the point she should get for being able to execute it. So you right. see the jockey syndrome as a part of the black experience in sport in America throughout that experience. And that's what's so interesting is that when you think of black athletes, there are certain sports you think about. But when you started seeing black athletes, at least the black athletes that we knew about in current times, whether it's a Tiger Woods or the Williams sisters or, you know, um, you mentioned Simone Biles, um, Gabby Douglas, when they started uh, Dominique Dawes, when they were exceeding uh, and succeeding in these so-called elite and white sports, the reception was not always that great. And it was not hidden. It was like, you know, and it's one of those things as a black person who knows uh, racism exists in America. When you have this sport and you say, okay, this is what you have to do to play this sport. These are the rules. And a black person says, okay, I'll do that. And I'll follow these rules. And they go to the top. It's like, okay, no, now we have a problem with this. Now we have a, now we have a rule change. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not unlike when, um, 
I think there was a season, I want to make sure I get this right, College, the NCAA forbade, was it dunking because of Lou Alcindor uh, and his dominance in that space? And that's how he creates the skyhook. He's like, okay, you won't let me dunk? And let I'm going to create a whole, right I'm going to innovate, I'm going to just, <laughs> huh. right. you're always going to find a way now. Well, and, but, and yeah, that's, that's, it's that's, just the insanity of it. So in every every molecule of American society, when black folks are saying, hey, this isn't fair, this isn't fair, and the powers that be or the people who have never been negatively impacted by the rule changes, you know, say, again, we make everything about race. And we're saying, no, we actually signed up to do exactly what you were doing. So we had the same equipment. We, we paid the same fees. We got the same training. If I so happen to be better, why does the rule need to change now? Yeah. Like... Yeah, and we hadn't we hadn't mentioned race, but now that the rules are changing and it, the person who's succeeding doesn't look like you all, we can't help but wonder whether race is a factor. Because what else you could it be? It can't, it's not our performance. <laughs> it can't. It's not our performance. But yeah, Colin Kaepernick's situation is kind of consistent with what we've seen overall when athletes speak out against issues in a, in, in this way. I mean, you saw it. We we most famously speak of Muhammad Ali. Right. But, you know, there are obviously other examples of it. Uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos at the 68 Olympics Mm -hmm. and suffered repercussions for that. Craig Hodges, who played for the Chicago Bulls and helped them win a couple of rings in that first run in the early 90s. They go to the White House with uh, Bush one. Before they go, he's asking Jordan to kind of come with him and be a voice for black people uh, because it's, it's, it's in the aftermath of the Rodney King attack and I think it's even after the um, the acquittal of the four officers who attacked them. And Hodges goes to the White House for the you know the, the whatever meeting with the president and and confronts Bush and reads a letter of some kind to him about uh, needing to do more for Black people. And I don't think Hodges plays another game. Right. Like he's, he just kind he's, of he's washed. He's mm-hmm. he's he's done goods. And uh, Chris Jackson, who went on uh, for religious purposes, changed his name to. Uh, Mahmoud Abdul Raouf did not stand for the anthem mm-hmm. in either '96 or '97. I think he was with the um, I think he was with the the Nuggets. Nuggets, yeah. Um, he was with the Nuggets, and it was kind of very Kaepernick-esque, right? Like he, uh, it took a while for the press to even realize notice that he wasn't that right. he, that he wasn't because I think he was actually staying back in the locker room for the anthem, mm-hmm. and he gets I think he gets fined for that, and he was a good player. Like, it wasn't one of those things where, oh, well, he's expendable. He was a good player, but once his contract expired with uh, with the Nuggets, I don't think he had any meaningful playing time with the NBA after that point. So then uh, how, so- how does that, does that, you know, so if you see this happening historically, and like you said, you know, it's been for a long time, for anybody who's alive right now, you've seen someone speak up. Uh, and be punished or not have the career that they used to have or not be afforded the opportunities they used to be afforded. So where does that leave people? You mentioned Hodges, you know, calling on Jordan, and and that's always been kind of a, a famous person who chose not to speak up as much as other people felt he should have. I mean, it's a very personal choice, right? Uh, it used very to be... Personal. Back in the day, you didn't talk about who you voted for. You didn't talk about your salary, you know, (laughs) and now it's a very public thing about who we support politically. So in sports, is there do you feel there is a social responsibility that comes with being a professional athlete or a social responsibility that comes with having that platform? Or is it just, hey, I want to be an athlete and y'all work out all that other stuff when I'm done? 
I think this is a very uh, nuanced conversation. In fact, more nuanced than we've been able to have as a country around this issue. You mentioned my research at the top of this. As a student at the University of Florida, and since I've graduated, I've been working on a, a framework that was originally uh, put forth by George Cunningham, but it's a multi-level factors that uh, could drive an athlete's decision to engage in activism, kind of at this macro, meso, and micro levels. And, you know, if you think in terms of the, the when I say macro levels, institutionalized practices, practices such as racism and political climate, who's the president? If you're talking, if we're talking about those meso level factors, which we might talking, be talking about which team the player plays for, the culture of the team, the demography of the city in which the team is located, those kind of regional factors, if you will. And then at the micro level, all comes down to what that player's specific experiences, you know, are, how financial, how, how financially comfortable they are. What have been their experiences with the police? What have been their experiences with racism? Those are the type of micro factors that come into play. And all those things can kind of, you know, the factors kind of intersect with each other and all kind of merge with each other at some point. And what I've seen over the last several years, I would have said that these, these, you know, if you conceptualize them as a box at the top that says macro, the one in the middle, equidistance, you know, it's one in the middle, Meso and then equidistant is one at the bottom called micro. They were interacting with each other, but they were pretty static. They were staying in their place. What I've seen over the last couple of years, especially after the um, the Milwaukee Bucks took the action they did that triggered like sports shutting down across the world um, mm-hmm. last August, those factors are starting to kind of merge and overlap with each other so that it doesn't matter whether the event occurred in your city or not. If you feel impacted by it, you're going to, you might be more inclined to uh, react as an athlete with a platform. All that having been said and that and that, that framework having been provided, I've come to believe, and I hadn't always had this thought, but I've come to believe that activism isn't for every athlete. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, I do think, I do generally believe in the notion of to whom much is given, much is required. And what we have to understand is not everybody is equally given when it comes to elite athletes. Not everybody has a platform. Not everybody has the ability to take the risk. And we have to have some, we have to allow for some space for conversation, some nuanced conversation around kind of who, who can afford to put it on the line and, and who's willing to, to not bounce a ball again or throw a pass again after they've taken a, a potentially controversial stand. Mm-hmm. I hope that he was financially prepared for that, and, as well as mentally and emotionally prepared. So as you mentioned, that sports mirrors the micro, is a microcosm of what we are in America. We're all exhausted. We're all heartbroken. We're all tired of the stories that we keep seeing, particularly when we talk about police brutality and uh, excessive use of force that results in the murders of Black people, innocent Black people, no less. Uh, but just the, all the civil unrest we've experienced in the last year or two, you know, what is it when you look historically and when you're also talking to your students, you know, what what is it that we're looking forward to? Like, do are we going to get better before we get worse? Or will we get worse before we get better as far as, you know, this whole shut up and dribble thing that folks feel like, well, mm-hmm. you shouldn't have an opinion and that's not your problem. You're rich. So why are you worried about those people? You're not one of them. Um, are we going to see more of a steady decline in, uh, I don't know, support, corporate support for teams or, you know, are we going to start seeing, OK, this is the way that you can share your thoughts, your political views, your human rights interests without, you know, having to take a hit? 
Yeah, I think we're in a moment where like it could go in either direction. <laughs> I can't I can't read the tea leaves on this just yet because we are very much in this in this season. I will say this, that I mean, my goodness, literally while the trial of Chauvin is going on to have the murder of this young man, as long as we continue to have these type of events, these conversations will never go away. And I don't think at this point, athletes are going to stop talking. So Mm -hmm. I think that is part of what companies have to figure out. I mean, in addition to the voting rights piece and, and companies coming out in support of the notion of there being right voting rights for all, how, how much are they going to support leagues and teams that, that support these issues and support them in different ways, whether it's speaking out, whether it's, taking a knee, whether it's not playing a, a few games while you're in the bubble. Like where I, I think like it'll be a part of that show and proof for companies to decide like where their line of demarcation is on that support. And I just don't I think it's too soon to I think it's too soon to say, because as long as as long as the incidents keep happening. Well, what's interesting is the incidents sadly keep happening. And then the protests then are met with counter protest and most of the counter protests are protesting the protest. And it's like, you know, when, when Colin Kaepernick was then supported by Nike, then folks start burning their Nikes. Or as you mentioned, the governor of Texas who didn't throw out the first pitch at the Rangers game because he's protesting MLB. MLB. He has pulled out of Georgia because of the voter suppression. It's like becomes this, this ongoing thing of, well, you're, you're upset about that. Well, I'm upset with you for being upset being about upset. that. Then mm-hmm. the next incident happened. And I saw someone, an article today, the headline says, okay, well, uh, do all of the police brutality, does that mean we should be having riots? It's almost like, well, why? That doesn't mean they should keep having riots. It's like, yeah, actually, that's exactly what that means. Is we should keep <laughs> it is. It, yeah. Like yeah. if they happen, there'll be riots. Like, yeah, that's, that's ex- exactly, that's exactly what it, it means. It does become this vicious cycle. That, that we seem to be in. And just as, as soon as we seem to be coming up for or feeling like we might be coming up to air on one, one incident, another one literally happens. If, if I'm, if I'm an elite athlete in the space, like I'll say this, I'll take this time to say this. Like I, I really admire, uh, when we talk about, uh, sports leagues, the, the WNBA has really, I think, gotten it right around as an entity supporting its players around these issues. And I think the difference between them and other leagues is that they've kind of been doing the work for years. They aren't uh, Johnny's or Jill's come lately to this space. And and their players have been at the front line of activism and, you know, to the point like taking like personal responsibility and taking time away from playing to to devote themselves to various causes, particularly around criminal justice. But I think that the WNBA is like a model for how leagues can approach and support their players who want to engage in activism. Um, and I, I agree. The WNBA has always had to fight <laughs> to to play, fight to sell tickets, fight for marketing dollars. And so I think they were already they've always been prepared to, to fight for the uh, the un, underrepresented uh, portion uh, of the population. So what can we do? We always like to leave our listeners with uh, an action item, a, a be the change item. And so when we're talking about sports and athletics, you know, what is it that we can do? And not necessarily just specifically to athletics or athletes or sports, but what can we do in that space of, you know, being the change of what it is that we're either doing or not doing that can possibly make some of this better? 
Yeah. I don't know how much this makes it better, but I'm all about like people finding out new information and, and, and being informed and sharing that information. For me, as somebody who, um, I guess at this point, I'll call myself a sports historian. I would want people, because sports history is a part of American history, mm-hmm. uh, I would encourage folks to engage sports history as a serious discipline. Uh, as far as researching areas of, of the Black experience in sport that you might not be familiar with. We didn't get a chance to really talk about like the unsung women athletes who protested in their own ways or the tremendous history of black women collegiate track stars from institutions like Tuskegee and Tennessee State uh, and Florida A&M. So there is an opportunity, I think, for folks to use the Google and other instruments to learn more about the African-American experience in sport. And perhaps because sports are so popular here, maybe by learning about more about sports figures, unsung sports figures, and valuing the voices of some of these athletes, maybe some of the causes that they that they promote through their activism. Maybe that's a way for folks to become more informed around these larger issues. Like you learn more about the athletes, you learn about the issues that they're passionate about. And that is a segue for you to your, yourself to come to decide what issues you're passionate about what issues you want to rally around or support through donations or by volunteering your time. Find the thing that makes you passionate. I mean, there's so many social justice issues that could occupy your time, whether it's around criminal justice reform, whether it's around voting rights. And it doesn't necessarily have, sports doesn't have to necessarily be the entree into that. But if you're not otherwise interested, perhaps sports is the way that you can use to learn about, you know, your favorite athletes and what they're doing from a social justice standpoint. And maybe that's an issue that speaks to you. But if not, find your own issue that resonates with you and go make a change. Find what matters to you. Find what speaks to you. I think that's one of the reasons why we do have the action item is so many times we're looking at somebody else to save us. And it's like each one teach one. We have to save yeah. ourselves yeah. To, to in order to save the community. Maybe yeah. you will um, agree to come back and talk to us about some of those things that uh, you mentioned as far as uh, women in sports. And then also, you know, this new wave of HBCU hotness, you know, <laughs> I would, I would love to talk about, I have things to say about the HBCU hotness. Yes, the HBCU uh, hotness is a whole new thing where top recruits are heading to HBCUs. HBCUs are securing big name former professional athletes as head coaches and yes. uh, it's, it's changing the tide as far as marketing dollars, television dollars, and um, it's going to be interesting to see how much more that continues. I'm excited about that. I'd love to have you come back and talk to us more about that. Michelle Clement, thank you so much. Tell us the name of the podcast that you co-host and how we can follow more about some of the work you're doing in athletics. Absolutely. Um, and thank you, Eunice, for having me. Um, I co-host a podcast called Black Girls Vibe, and um, it is sports talk from and leisure generally talk from the perspective, spoken from the perspective of two professional black women. Um, my friend and star, Andrea, For- Andrea Ford and I are the co-hosts for the podcast. You can find us on, I mean, we chop it up the most on Facebook. You know, we mm-hmm. are we are black women solidly in our 40s. Uh, so Facebook... <laughs> feels like the like it's our comfort zones. So you can find right. us at Black Girls Vibe Tribe on Facebook. We're also on Instagram at Black Girls Vibe Tribe. And we're also on Twitter at the same handle. So it's very easy to find us. Uh, but we do our most um, trash talking and whatnot on Facebook. So come and let me join just us. Say, yeah, well, let me say with the Black Girls uh, Vibe Tribe that there's quite a few men in the tribe as well. There, yes, it's, it's yes. There, come one, come all. 
So we do not discriminate on the basis of anything. Uh, in fact, it, it, the, the diversity in the group makes it pretty interesting. So please, yeah. please join us. We'd love to have you. And we're putting out content uh, every two weeks. Go check us out on your favorite platform. We're out there. Thank you, Eunice. Thank you so much, Michelle, for coming on and again for being a supporter and friend of the history of being black. Thank you all for listening. Don't forget to hashtag be the change. Tweet us, uh, follow us, subscribe to us. Uh, we want to see what you're doing to help uh, build your communities and build stronger uh, conversations for black folks and, and, you know, making new history of black folks here in America. So, again, stay safe and we'll talk to you guys next time on the history of being black. The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott, edited by Ken Johnson, executive producers Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcast. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean Old Lion production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.